This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guests on our podcast today are uh, lager heroes here in Denver, Colorado. Bill I and Ashley Carter of Bierstadt Lager House. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here. Now, you all have a rather uh, unique business if you consider the number of brewing businesses in the United States. Uh, if you consider them worldwide, maybe not quite so unique. Um, what led you all uh, down this path to launch a brewery that only brews lager beer and in that sense focuses primarily on uh, Pilsner and Hellas we're uh, sadistic that's number <laughs> one um, but other than that go ahead Bill number two it's the only thing I've really wanted to make for the last 10 years and uh, both of us focus on it very intently we go to Germany we try to pick up all the techniques we can we're literally trying to make a a world-class beer and I don't know if anybody has the ability to do a world-class beer in more than a couple things I think it's not very possible to run the gamut and crush everything so this is the stuff we like to make and drink and so this is what we chose to make so there's that artistic vision or that creative vision or that craft vision of building this thing that you really want to build but then there's the other side of that, which is the business reality, that you also have to sell what you make. Um, how do you reconcile those two? Well, uh, go ahead. I, uh, you know, I think that um, a lot of times people get caught chasing chasing something, and there's always a new trend. There's always a new something, and sometimes by the time that uh, some people adopt these trends really the only people that are successful at them are the first people who are doing them. And some people can have some minor success uh, chasing them. But if you focus your whole business model on chasing them, then I, I believe that you can't really truly get great at it. And that is our goal here. And, you know, by focusing on one thing, it, it, it just, it all comes back to our why. And by focusing on one thing, it, it makes it very easy for us to say no to things. And sometimes you end up in a slippery slope if you say yes to one thing, and then what else are you going to say yes to? Well, I'll, I'll, we're going to do this one trend, but then, you know, and there have been some breweries that have had wild success doing exactly opposite of what they said they intended to do at the beginning. And I don't begrudge those people either, but I do think it's important to have a strong why and, you know, lager beer and pale lager especially is is part of our our why also i want to dispel the thought that this was a risky thing to do uh i don't know if i know pastry stouts and sours and new england ipas are getting all the press but lager's on a 170 year winning streak it's crushed everything in its <laughs> path and continues to crush yeah. everything in its path uh only one out of ten people are drinking craft beer at all anyway I mean, if you take a look at Nationwide. So why be in the end of the pool, if you are looking at it from a purely business perspective, why compete in the craft market in the IPA game when 30 of the 35 craft beer taps are going to be IPA, when only three of those are lager and we make lager? Uh, that's not why we did it, but I don't understand why that's risky. 
You know, it seems, you know, if, if I'm thinking about it, you know, there are, there are different, there are folks that have different business pressures on them. You know, there are the folks that start with a few hundred thousand dollars and they need to sell beer right now. And they, you know, they want to make something that's going to be hot and get people to line up. Um, you know, and, and some of that, you know, is a reality for them that they have to, they, they don't necessarily have a, a long game luxury, but you all seem to be playing a very long game here where, uh, you know, you know, you are looking at, you know, 10 years in the future, maybe even 20 years in the future and where this business will be at that point. Um, that, that has, like, how do you, again, you know, build that luxury into a business model to say, we're going to grow this at a pace that we want to grow it at that, that lets us focus on the integrity of the product and get to where we're going to be down this road. I don't know. Bill and I aren't wealthy people and I sometimes do not see the luxury in a, a car without a taillight, you know, which is pretty much the only thing we own yeah. uh, besides a dog. So, I mean, it's just a, I just think it's an organization of priorities and for us, this is our retirement plan, and I don't mean because we're going to make a lot of money off it, because yeah. nobody makes money at this, unless, you know, I guess there are a few people out there, I shouldn't say. No one makes money at it, but uh, this is not a rich, this is not a, there's not a lot of money in this. Yeah. And so to see, to say that we have to make money now, I think um, dispels that you, what is waiting eight weeks? I mean, honestly, if you don't have eight weeks to wait, or if you don't have, you don't have the time to wait for those things, and I don't. I don't know if anybody has to sell beer right now. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's your own pressure on yourself. And we just chose a, a different way and we did it the hard way and we did it for the long game and it's not easy. And it totally sucks sometimes when, you know, it takes, it takes a minute. People think breweries just pop up and people start lining up inside. And that's just not the case. Even here in River North, we are still not really that well known, believe it or not. Sure, Cause we have sure. a far better national, uh, reputation than we do even in our own city where people walk in here and still don't even know that we exist. Also, I I think it goes back to you have to ask yourself, why did you get in this business in the first place? Was it because you had something to show people, some part of you that you wanted to express in beer? Because honestly, if you just got in this to chase trends and make some money, I wish you'd go make pencils. Like, I wish you'd go do something else to make your money. This is what we love to do, and the people that I respect they're all in like uh we're all in we borrowed two loads of money from the bank and i know they want it back uh and i know everybody well into seven figures well into seven figures and i know they want this money back and they'll get it yeah but um the the model you talk about where somebody investing a few hundred thousand dollars if if all it was was to you know return on investment maybe you should have parked it in the market like i just think that we are doing this because it's really the only thing we wanted to do. And I don't understand the business model whereby you do something you don't believe in just to make a buck. This is what we believe in. This is why there is no plan B. If suddenly tomorrow people oh, stop yeah, drinking pale lager, let's blow, let's blow, blow this, this place and move to Argentina <laughs> yeah, there's the, no extradition. Yeah, I don't know cool. of anything. There is no plan B. Yeah, besides that's that. the backup plan right there. <laughs> well, uh, fair enough. I think, you know, maybe, maybe there, yeah, there uh, uh, is this, you know, still this question and assumption, like, how, how do you build a business model when you are borrowing that kind of money 
and then taking this long to make beer and paying yourselves and figuring this out and then at the same time selling the beer for you know five or six dollars for a 32 ounce crowler of it by the way that's the right price i'll I'll make an argument for that in a minute why that's the right price but uh (laughs) with a caveat with a caveat that is that's true um i would well it's not made for a lot of super easy nights of sleep like i mean it's yeah. it comes with some stress and it definitely comes with some commitment somebody asked me at the craft brewers conference because i don't know if your listeners know but we don't sell our beer unless you sell it in our glass in your bar right and so uh somebody asked me how do you how do you make that happen and the answer is you say no if they don't do it like it's so simple that no one wants to say no everybody wants to sell that keg so what you do is you say no and you mean it and you stick to your vision and it either it either succeeds or not but you're true to what you believe and who you are and you and you run with that the piece of that equation though is that they still have to want to sell that and how do you then convince you know out there in a market that's very crowded that people should want to sell your beer why how do you get those folks to come to you and say hey add us as an account you know for us most other breweries are doing it the opposite way and having to go out and and really you know pitch what they're doing to those breweries or to those uh you know beer sellers it's a lot of just how we build this place from the start i mean we talk about the cost or whatever and it did cost a lot of money to begin with it's the difference between hard costs and soft costs honestly we have a lot of hard costs and very little soft costs it's just bill and i and the brewery um you know, we don't have any other employees. I mean, Bill's kid comes and cleans kegs for us, but that's about it. And we're on pace to do about 1,800 barrels this year, just the two of us. So we don't have a lot of um, of soft costs when it comes to that thing. And that's how we built this place to begin with, is yeah. to make a lot of beer at a time, which is, to me, the only way you can do it, especially consistently uh, for lager beer. Um, we make, you know, we have built in the processes from the beginning yeah which is to say we put in lager tanks we put in fermenters like the processes are all there it's just it runs like an ale brewery like it, i know it doesn't seem like it because mm-hmm. every, everybody who's trying to make a lager right now it ties up a tank that could be doing something else well these tanks couldn't be doing something else so yeah they're just this is just the natural progression of the way things are and that's how the brew schedule is is very much uh cut and dry like that so as far as like the cost goes to make lager it's just like anything else and we make a boatload of it at a time and our cost of ingredients is <laughs> we're not think, we're not hopping at seven we're not we're not hopping at seven pounds of barrel <laughs> sure. with cool kid sure. hops you sure. know yeah. we're hopping at one and a half pounds per barrel for pills of uh hops that nobody wants <laughs> so <laughs> i mean i want them but <laughs> to, to answer your question also yeah. i think that how do you make somebody want to buy that uh it seems like everybody's had good luck getting somebody to take a chance on their beer and then i guess from there it's just and it's out of our control does it or does it not sell if it sells they'll order it again if it doesn't sell they won't order it again so we've had good luck on the first part of it 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 is selling so if you can get somebody to take the risk and, and and make the space also we do a decent job of building relationships when we put our beer in a place we bring their whole staff in yeah we feed them beer we take them on a tour we let them know why we do what we do and it's amazing if if you can inspire people as to why you're doing what you do the amount of buy-off on some of these staffs that come in that sell our beer is outstanding i mean some of them have never been on a brewery tour before some of them have never seen what they're actually selling and 
honestly, if the staff likes it, I feel like you have a really strong possibility of being a, a big seller. And and the, the point is not to talk anybody into it. If you have to talk somebody into the glassware, then it's not going to work. And that's okay too. We have different business yeah. models. There's a lot of bars here in Denver. And some are good bars for us to be in and some are not. And whatever your business model, you, you know, you opened your own business to do what you wanted to do. And that's your prerogative to, you know, not take the glassware. And we've had, you know, we've had a decent number of accounts that I would love to be in that won't do it for the glassware. And that's okay too. You know, we just have to find those people and you have to do a little bit more work to find the partners in this. We have 45 static accounts. We don't do rotators. We don't do six barrels. We don't do any of these things because with the glassware, it's very complex. That's a, it's a pretty large expense on our part. You know, they do pay us for the glassware, but still it's the ordering and the sure, this sure. and the that and the everything that goes along with it. But, you know, when you find people who want to part you, partner with you, and some of them were hard sells. Uh, Hops and Pie, for example, as one of our bigger accounts, they do pills, and it took a long time. They didn't want to do it, and we, co- they asked if they could co-brand our glass, and we said, hell yeah, we, please we do. We, we, totally wore we wore them down. We wore them down. Hell yeah, you can co-brand <laughs> yeah, our glass, yeah. and it was, you know, the staff's idea to pour it slow. Like we don't require them to do mm-hmm. that, but they do it in a three-part pour, and they do an amazing they job at it because they're job there. they're sold. Yeah, on yeah. it and you can't make somebody be sold on it they just ha- they have to be and if they are then I don't think a keg that's $20 cheaper is going to go on in our place and that's the relationship we're trying to garner is evangelizing having these places evangelize for us you know tell your story for you in some ways you've added more value to that equation that uh, the idea that you are so focused and so passionate and that you know is reflected in the product and that in a strange way, you've built a bit of scarcity into the model uh, in a logger sense and that it's not available everywhere and there is that that barrier to entry with your glassware and that kind of uh, you know policy and restriction and that the, you're viewing these accounts you know not just as how much you know can you sell to the most number of people but how can we build individual relationships with the staff and the owners and uh, you know build this for the long run and that you know that again seems to be a, a long game strategy around this. But, but interesting that you've taken a, maybe a little page out of the, uh, the more hip breweries in, in their <laughs> scarcity model with lager. Well, you know, we <laughs> I, I have to tell you, with the equipment on site, you know, we can't make that much more beer. So there's, a, there's some comfort in knowing that if you can only make X amount of beer, and to be honest, we're a brew pub, so our, our business model was never a production facility where we sell 10,000 barrels of beer out of here. So when you know you can only make you know, 1,500 barrels of beer ever and sell to bars, you can be selective. You don't have to worry about, you know, frankly, $145 keg sale pales compared to the $700 kegs that we sell over the bar. And so we'd actually like more business here, less out there. So it actually makes it easy for us to be that focused on where we're going to put our beer. Uh, how does that business balance out for you? I mean, you know, how much is external and how much is internal and how much is your Too much that- external. Yeah, you probably. always want more internal. Sure. Sure. You can sure. sell one keg across the bar for five kegs out. So uh, we're getting better at that balance. Again, it's just, it, takes a, it takes a lot yeah. of time for people to find you. It just, yeah. and we've done a lot of things in this building here to try and mitigate more people coming here. The games and such and... Well, we sell liters of Hellas. I don't know what else you need to come here. That's enough for me. But, uh, you know, I guess the hipsters need something to do sometimes. So, 
Uh, you know, some some folks might say that the uh, you know five and six dollar crowlers that you sell out of your tap room would be a great reason to come by here. Uh, I think it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what? So why? You know, when you put that much work into it, uh, sell crowlers for that price. All right. So, this oh, is. Do you want a caveat first, or do you want to go straight? Oh, into I gotta the... go straight into it. All right. All right. So, if this is the caveat, if it turns out that you can actually sell beer to accounts, you're saying you have surplus beer, then I think you owe the customer a decent to-go price. For example, our $5 crowler, which everybody talks like it's lunacy, is a $15 six-pack of to-go beer. That's a crazy, it's not a crazy number, it's a big number. If you can't, if you don't have the spare beer, and you could sell every pint over the bar, then I'm in agreement that you have to charge in that crowler what it would cost if you bought two beers in your place. So if you charge six bucks for a, for a pint, and you can sell every bit of it and do sell every bit of it in your place, you should charge $12 for a crowler. But if you're charging $12 for a crowler, and you're still selling kegs out in the marketplace, you've now given somebody a $32 six-pack. That's robbery. I don't understand why people pay it. It's silly. We don't think we are underpriced. We think if it's a to-go package, you're going to take it home and have it with your dinner and pour it. You didn't pay my electrical bill. You don't have to pay my heat and AC. We sold it to you to take home and drink. Why should that price be any different than walking into a liquor store and buying a $10 six-pack of something you want to drink? That's our whole take on why our crowlers are reasonably and correctly priced. <laughs> yeah, reasonably and correctly priced sure, is right. Sure. And I don't feel like passing on you know we've had a few people tell us you know business people in quotes and that we could sell more and we would you know but it's really important to bill and i to always not just do something because we can do it and just because people will pay for it you know we're in the city we're not in the suburbs so we don't actually sell that much to go beer per se you know people aren't coming in with their 10 growlers on a friday you know, they're just, they're just not, you know, when we worked at dry dock, that was the case on Fridays, it would back the bar up crazy because everybody would be there filling up their growlers. So there's a little bit less of that to go kind of thing anyways. And I'd rather them come here instead of going to the liquor store down the road uh, and buying a, you know, six pack of Coors or whatever, whatever they're going to have for football or dinner or whatever to to please all their friends. And that is a big reason why, why Bill and I've always said that this is what we're going to do it's we're not trying to like swindle anybody out of and i feel like if we charge any more money for it that's it doesn't feel good to me to charge more money for it because i know deep down that's not the price of it there's a you know the way that i look at this i mean we're we're in a unique time frame and and period for craft beer in general yes we are um (laughs) you know and and this this kind of market hasn't existed before uh, I think there are some in the craft beer world who are operating as if it's always going to be like this. You all seem to be taking a much more cautious approach and understanding that you know the next 10 years may not always look like it looks right now. I, I got into brewing in 1996. Yep. I went to the American Brewers Guild. At that time, in 1996, things were booming. Booming. Like three years ago here, booming. Just everybody's opening. By 2001, it was a ghost town. I mean, the, the, the breweries in our state, Avery, Odell, Left Hand, all of them 
were within one payroll of going under. That was 2001. They've all bounced back. They're now the leaders in this industry in this state. It will not last. It cannot last. It's not sustainable. I've seen the boom and bust, and it is. I don't know where we are in the cycle. Right. We could be booming for 10 more years, but it will not always be like this. Um, I don't know that it would change what we're doing, but I, 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 I would caution people. Well, a lot of regional breweries went into a lot of debt five years ago because they'd experienced you know, six straight years of double-digit growth, and that's right. fantastic. But they now probably regret the big expenditure at that time, and no one could have seen it. It's not like anybody had some special insight to what was coming down the pike, but these things are cyclical, and who's to say when the next bust happens? No, you're, you're absolutely right, and folks like Green Flash have watched their you know, ownership and equity get wiped out on, you know, under you know, the load of debt and some of those issues, and uh, overzealous expansion, um, and others have been able to learn from that, and you know, Deschutes has put off their expansion on the East Coast, and you know, there, there are a lot of those where uh, some reality is setting in. I, you know, I, I always ask this question, like, when is the next economic downturn come because I you know I, I do wonder if that next if recession you actually knew the answer I think you could really profit from that well you know <laughs> they, they tend to come in about 10 year cycles they do. and there was yeah. that you know that 2001 and then of course 2008 and uh, you know some folks have certainly said you know there's there is something probably you know looming over us you know at this point and, you know Again, who's to say when it's actually going to going to going to hit us? You know, but I, but I do wonder does that that twelve or fifteen or sixteen dollar crowler survive in an era where you know the economy starts to you know to fair take enough. a dip back? Yeah, fair enough. Uh, you all seem to have a, a you know a model that may be a little more recession proof than some. I, I suppose beers. I mean, beer seems to be the one luxury people will spend even during sure. economic downtimes, but. But the breweries themselves definitely are going to have to weather a coming storm. I don't know how many will. I think, if I were to guess, I think we're in the middle of uh, the second extinction event. Like, I think we're going to see a bunch of breweries go down in the next three years. I'm not hoping for it. Right, I, I right. Am, I, the friends I have in the industry and the ones I don't know, I wish them, whenever you put everything on the line to open a brewery, good luck for you. And uh, I think you should... I hope you succeed, but I do think we're in a real weird spot right now, and I think the bubble has bursted or is bursting, and we just don't know it yet. That's an interesting point, and and you know most of the smaller, you know, creative, smart business people in the brewing world I know have been actively working to limit their debt for that same you know, reason that the less they owe anybody else, then you know the more they have control of their business, and the less you know the the more they can make what they want to make and, and kind of deal and weather through that storm. And a lot of that is, you know, bringing that in, back in and trying to sell as much as they can directly to that consumer and also build that relationship, which you talked about earlier. Um, certainly not a bad strategy on your part. How do you market this live experience of, of Rackhouse Pub and Beerstadt Lager House and bring those people in? Oh, uh, we don't. Uh, we're <laughs> horrible at it, honestly. Um, Bill and I are the worst at marketing, to be honest with you, because yeah. I'd always rather spend my money on something else that helps me make beer better um and i feel that kind of pinch sometimes where you know we don't have a graphic designer we don't have any of these things and i start to like get envious of all these people with their super cool cans or whatever and and then i remember that the reason why we're doing this is the beer and the way that we've marketed it's 
intentional and not intentional at the same time. Uh, I think the glassware contributes to our marketing. But to be honest with you, it was just kind of always what we were going to do. So it's kind of a, a positive, even though it wasn't really on purpose. But we feel like, you know, you get a Hellas out or a Pills out at a bar. And you see, you may not, most people don't really know what they're drinking. It's amazing yeah. to me, like, unless they check in everything on Untapped. Uh, they really have no idea what they're drinking. I mean, you could ask somebody. They have, like, I've seen it before. Even people drinking out of our glass that, like, clearly has our logo and our name on it. And they're like, what was this beer again? Like, they have no idea what it is, even with the name on it. So, honestly, when you see, we were at a bar the other day, and this guy got a Hellas, and it came in the mug. And he's like, wait a minute, I've had this beer before. Like, it sometimes people, it's, it's subconsciously marketing a little bit uh, to people, uh, but we try not to market at people too much. And Bill and I just try to be as genuine as we can be, and we can be a little outspoken, I know, sometimes, and not everybody's cool with that. But I would say that, you know, you, you have to decide if you're gonna try to please everybody and you're not going to be pleasing yourself or if you're going to please a very small group of people who uh, would go to bat for you. And that's, that's kind of how we've, we've approached this whole thing. I don't have an answer. Our, our, uh, <laughs> our marketing game is weak. Yes, yeah, so weak. <laughs> I, 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 I think, uh, I mean, to excuse our poor marketing, I think the only marketing that's ever really done any good whatsoever is just authenticity. I, I, we're, we're really just us, uh, warts and all, and I don't, we're not trying to project uh, our story, we're not trying to project our brand. In fact, I'm uncomfortable speaking in terms of brand. It's just so odd. Eventually you go down the road where you have people that are marketing your beer, and they're just marketers, and they call it liquid. It, it isn't even beer anymore, it's just this commodity to be marketed. Our, our marketing game is weak, but our uh, our commitment to what we do is strong, and I think that that's honestly really the only thing that's ever worked. Fair enough. Well, let's talk a little bit, since obviously the, the beer itself and that liquid in the glass. The liquid, uh, yes. <laughs> that's, you know, that does tend to be the biggest focus for you. Um, how did you go about deciding what you were going to brew in that sense? Like, not, not just you you're going to you know, focus on lagers, but how did you go about designing your flagship Bierstadt Pilsner? Um, and uh, what were some of the concerns that, uh, that you considered as you were uh, developing I don't even it? think we ever even talked about what we were going to make. We just were. We were, yeah. Yeah, like, <laughs> we've kind of been on the same page for a while with that. But, I mean, uh, well, the, the strange thing about lager is it's not a recipe-driven thing at all. Yeah. Um, there's only so many ways to make a pilsner with the ingredients. There's pills malt and there's hops. And I don't mean to simplify it any more than that, but honestly, that's what it is. It's more about a technique and a process and having the equipment to do what needs to be done if you want to, uh, to make it as traditionally as possible. So we've got an old copper brew house. Copper actually helps in the brewing of lager. Uh, the copper ions actually complex with the, the sulfur that's made during fermentation, makes sulfur, uh, uh, sulfur dioxide, not sulfur, um, uh, it'll hit me in a second. Anyway, it, uh, so you got water, H2O, anyway, it, it gets heavy and, and falls to the bottom of the vessel and you're left with less sulfur in your right. beer. Uh, copper does a great job of that. We also bought a brew house that will do decoction. And people will tell you you don't have to do decoction, and people are right, you don't have to do decoction, and it doesn't make for a bad pilster. 
But it does make for a different Pilsner when you decox. So we have a brew house at decox. What, we, uh, what is that difference for you? I think it's a way to make a drier beer that still has an, an amazing malt character. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, and you can smell it in the brew house. When you're boiling that Pils mash, uh, there's a moment when it is hot, it's hot, and then the mash starts to boil. The entire aroma in the brew house changes. It becomes, I hate to use the word bready because everybody uses that, but it's bready-ish. And it just smells differently than it did 20 minutes ago. Um, and so I never use the word, I try not to use the word better. This better is so subjective, but I will always use the word different. It is different. And I, it's tough to place a finger on exactly what that difference is, other than to say that I love the combination of dryness with some maltiness, especially in our Hellas. Uh, the Hellas is more of a malt showcase than the Pils, and that we double decock that beer, and there's some powerful malt component, and this is a beer that finishes routinely below two Play-Doh. Like, there isn't a lot of residual sugar in this beer, but there is a maltiness that I think only comes from that technique, which I think is the whole trick behind making lager beer. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, when we were designing this, and Pils is Bill's baby, and Hellas is kind of my baby, and... You know, we were talking about putting together these recipes and we always knew that we were going to decoct and then I made the decision to double decoct the Hellas, which sometimes I kick myself during that third one and go, wait, why am I doing this again? And then you drink the beer and you go, you know, it's that elusive uh, malty without being sweet character that I think um, a lot of Hellas are missing. Uh, But it's just part of the whole process. It's not one thing 100% better. It's 100 things 1% better. And there's not one thing I can put a finger on in our brew house, in our brewery, or whatever that we do. But it's the commitment to doing every single one of those things every time. We have a flotation tank. Like, literally nobody uses a flotation tank. They hardly use them in Germany anymore um, in some places. You know, we're actually using a lot of techniques that they've abandoned a little bit in Germany uh, for the sake of, you know, Big business, saving energy, saving money, right. uh, shelf life, you know, all these things. But we want every single pale lager we make to be drank in 30 days. And I think we're pretty close to that, which is kind of a pretty cool thing to never have a beer older than 30 days, you know, out in the marketplace or even upstairs in our bar as far as, you know, Pills and Hellas are concerned. Because yeah. that beer should be drank fresh. So we had a chance before we opened this place to give... By the way, we, we use all Wireman malt, that place. We've toured it. We know the owners. Everybody loves to talk about local, and that's great. But the great thing about local is the connection made. Well, we've made a connection with the people at Wireman. They are amazing people. We've gone to their malt house more than once. We've gotten private tours. The quality there, in my opinion, is unparalleled. We had a chance to try an heirloom variety of malt before we got open, and we made a, tar- a uh, pilot batch with the guys at the Sandlot, and we used the Barca Pills and it performed beautifully in the brew house. It, it, is, it has an amazing flavor, high yield, and it has this uncanny, and I can't put my finger on why because I can't think of the, the reason, the mechanism by which this would be true, but our beer ages very, very well. Even though, like she just said, we're trying not to get it to age too long. <laughs> but um, so that Barca Pills malt that we yeah. picked, and it's our base malt for all of our flagship beers. Hmm. Um, I, I really love the malt. We, have to contract a little bit of it because it's in demand now but yeah. um we really like that the hops we use are from the hollertau 
we have a, a relationship with a farmer there and we've gone there during harvest it was an amazing experience um, and to be honest when you're only going to use two things and that's all that's in pills Hollertel hops and pills malt um, you have to I think you have to be very selective about whose malt you're using what hops you're using and so we go out of our way to we went out of our way to find what we really love the most. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then get out of the way, you know. Pick a lager yeast that ferments cleanly. Go slow. It's, there's only really one trick to lager, and that's patience. And go slow. Be patient. Take your time, and sell fresh beer. Let's talk a little bit about the head of your beer. I mean, I think when I drink that Pilsner in particular, I am just struck by how soft and creamy and how tight, uh, you know, that head is. Um, what is it about your technique then that produces such a, a wonderful experience in, in that head of beer? Uh, it's a it's a lot of things, and I think the import there are two important things, and then there's one really important thing. So the two important things are you know how you treat it in the brew house. Um, we naturally carbonate to the best of our ability, uh, which is part of just keeping that CO two in suspension. That's a that's a big deal. So yeah. we're transferring beer very gently. Like right now I'm filtering pills literally as we're speaking. And it's, it goes slower because we filter under pressure. Mm. And to keep that foam in solution, I think that makes for very, very tight bubbles. Um, yeah. Obviously. And we go very slow when we're, we're, when we're actually touching up carbonation and things like that. But I think the thing that a lot of people forget is the last step, which in some ways you're not in charge of anymore. And that's the dispense. A lot of people just throw that part out the window. We bought extraordinarily nice faucets. Um, we do do the three-step pour here, you know, three to five minutes basically to get your pills. Um, sometimes longer if they forget, which does happen, of course. Um, but it's that dispense too. It's the care taken. It's the clean glassware. I mean, all these things uh, attribute to that kind of foam stability. Um, and, and that's that's a big deal. You can't fall down at the finish line, and you have to give the people dispensing the beer the tools in order to make that beer what it should be. Because, you know, there are sometimes you get it, and you're like, why is this beer flat? And you're like, oh, we were at a place, and they were, like, washing their glasses with Dawn dish soap. Like, that's never going to create for that wonderfully soft foam, frothy head right in your face. So it's all what of those little things. What do you all things. clean yours with? <laughs> uh, we use a beer clean glassware oh, okay. and then a rinse, of course. Yeah. And then we do pour it slowly. And then we have the faucets that allow you to dispense some really right. nice creamy foam on top, kind of like a creamer faucet, but not exactly. Um, but it's all those things intertwined with each other that I think create for that really tight, nice foam uh, that you're looking for and the lacing down the glass. It's, it's amazing that we... <laughs> You just asked a question that brewers care about and people that love beer care about. It's astonishing to be up there sometimes and watch people <laughs> get mad at the foam on the beer. Yeah. I've seen them take our, our little paper coaster that we put around the bottom, use it as a scoop to scoop the foam out, <laughs> throw it on the bar. Like It is still, and I do think it's up to brewers to do some education, but that beautiful foam that we take so long to make and... and treasure Ugh, some, some people things. think we're trying to steal from them which I, is which is why all of our glasses have volumetric markings so we can point and go no that's you're getting a half yeah liter. you're getting a whole half liter it's yeah. so funny to see that I'll, like <laughs> scoop it off the top and like drag it in the well like one of our bartenders she was pretty funny she saw somebody scoop it off and they threw it on the floor but 
the whole foam cake was on the floor for like 20 minutes. So that was kind of cool, I guess, you know? <laughs> like, oh, I guess, you know, some fl- floor foam there for 20 minutes. <laughs> she didn't clean it up. She was like, I'm going to see how long it stays there till it dissipates. So, you know, at least if they don't appreciate it, not everybody can, gets not it. Everybody gets not it everybody but gets that, it. that's a little bit that's more of the education. On us too. Yeah. Yep, that's on us too. Let's talk a little bit about the Hellas. You say you double decocked this Hellas, and that's your your beer, mm-hmm. actually. Um, what were some of the design considerations around that one? Well, you go to Germany, you drink a shitload of liters of all the different <laughs> kinds of Hellas, and you decide which Hellas is your favorite, and yeah. you try to figure out how they did that. So we went to Germany, drank a shitload of liters of Hellas, and uh, I, you know, our favorite is Augustiner Hell, yeah, which you can't beat that in my opinion a close second is Hofbrau Hell in Germany as well I think ours sits somewhere in between uh, those two things uh, it's about creating that malt character not letting hops get in the way a lot of people have this idea in their head that you have to hop at like 70 minutes and then at 40 and then 20 so you can get some hop aroma and that beer doesn't need that and I think it's sometimes that restraint of in the brew house that's necessary you know, I've done a lot of collaborations uh, with people and they'll be like okay so like 40 IBUs you're like nah man like 20 like let's cut that back they're like so one in the whirlpool and you're like nah man let's 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 restrain ourselves and you know we're at 70 minutes and and 40 minutes they do like that little bit of background of, of almost top aroma but it's not it's just there to balance malt sweetness that's all the hops are there to do like if you took a Coors Banquet beer, for example, which we drink a lot of, and if yeah. it had 20 IBUs, it would you could drink a drink lot more of, more of it. I would drink more. You know, of it. <laughs> it's about balancing that sweet malt character with just enough hops that it's not fatiguing. And I think that Hellas also it's this it walks this fine line between bland and sublime, and it shouldn't knock you off your feet your first one, even after your first half liter. You should be getting down on your second or third half liter before you decide. This beer is perfect. I don't want to change anything about it. There's nothing fatiguing about it. And now I can get on with my other conversation that I was having over this beer that's way that, that's way more important than the beer in front of me uh, talking about our life or whatever. And I think that's the kind of beer that's supposed to get out of the way but be assertive enough that you, know, you still know you're drinking beer. That's an interesting point that you make beer that is for occasions that are general occasions and not just beer that... Uh, you know, you want people to uh, decipher and uh, intensely evaluate. Oh, um, it's the world's most boring conversation is a bunch of people sitting around a table drinking a beer and talking about the beer. It's don't you have anything else going on in your life? <laughs> it's miserable. I want to move when that conversation's happening. Is this mosaic or citra? It's the worst <laughs> conversation. It is not what beer has ever intended to be. Beer is a beautiful social lubricant, and if you want to talk about the beer for a second, fine. But honestly, we make beer that the only question that you should be asked is, would you like another? And the only evaluation is, do I want another? Like, it is it is just there to uh, ease your life as you get out of your awful cubicle and you come down to the bar to meet your friends and talk about the shit that you can't stand. Like, that is what beer is for. So for us, we do make that beer. We make beer that doesn't need an instruction manual. And doesn't need to be decoded in that way. It doesn't. I, I, I say that without worrying that it makes it less important or less interesting. I think it's just as interesting. I just think that it gets out of the way and lets you go on. 
still while being refreshing and delicious or whatever you want to look for in beer. But uh, I, that is the beer we make. Yeah. So in, in some ways, I mean, you all are deeply inspired by the German you know, brewing tradition. Um, but the beer you make now competes against some of those, you know, uh, big name German breweries that do inspire you for, for sales here. Uh, I feel really bad for them because their beer arrives in undrinkable condition. I have yet to pop a bottle of German lager in the last five years and been able to drink it. It's terribly oxidized. The problem is, and this is an interesting problem, people drink a bottle of Polaner or a bottle of Bitburger and they start to imagine that's what that beer is supposed to taste like. Well, that's not what it tastes like in Germany. In Germany, it is remarkable. I would hate and would not do well competing against German beers in Germany, especially if I had to ship it there. By the time their beer gets here, it is literally ruined. I know Germans that come here and are sad about the condition of the beer. It's oxidized to hell. And it's that's there's nothing you can do about it. The great thing about beer is it's not wine. Beer does not travel well. Certainly certain Belgian styles that are loaded with yeast. If you're going to drink a German beer in the United States, drink a Hefeweizen. That yeast is protective. But other than that, a filtered lager, there's something that when you lose the crisp freshness of a, of a freshly made lager beer, it's not appealing anymore. And, the, and yes, we do compete with them. And there are German restaurants that will refuse to take our beer because it wasn't made in Germany. And that's fine. But I'm telling you, that stuff is hard to drink here. Yeah. Anytime you pour one out and it's hazy, you're like, that never left if the brewery If it's got a hazy. slightly, if, if, even if it's just slightly veiled, that beer left Germany crystal clear. And if it's slightly veiled, it's too old to drink and you should know better. You yeah, shouldn't waste your they money They put year-long on dates on some of those beers, too. We, we drank a beer the other day. Uh, what was it? What, what was that beer? Uh, it, would, it was stale tasting. And the date on the bottle was one year from the day we were drinking it. They had another year they felt comfortable selling that beer. I don't know why. <laughs> a, a good friend of mine who was telling me, he's a, he's a professional brewer and uh, spends a lot of time in Germany, and he was remarking about the interesting trend of German brewers brewing American-style IPAs. And one of his insights was that uh, in, in a fascinating enough way, they tend to brew IPAs there that taste like oxidized American IPAs because the American IPAs that they get there have all been again shipped That's on a boat. Yes, and I believe. And so I believe. the IPAs <laughs> taste very old, and so that but that became their model. And I, you know, and I wonder then, in this general sense of beer, how many of you know American renditions of European beers and now European renditions of American beers are strangely impacted by some of the poor shipping conditions that, that we get. It's a great point. I would have to think. Yes, probably. Yeah, definitely. Or then say, you know, and this is something we've touched on in our forthcoming Belgian issue. A lot of the Belgian styles of beers that we have as a model here are ones that can last. You know, they, yeah, they, they are. The styles, and so we tend to think of them as maybe slightly sweeter or, you know, uh, you know more yeast forward. And there are a lot more styles, of course, made there than, sure. uh, you know, but those other styles just won't make the trip here. And so they don't I, tend to import Well, them. I've even heard, I had a, a brewer come back from Belgium and remark to me, how shockingly hoppy West Mall Triple is in Belgium. Yeah, I've yeah. never had a shockingly hoppy West Mall Triple in the United States. So even though some of these styles can clearly uh, last a little bit of time, they can't, I mean, some of them probably just are shadows of themselves as well. Right, and then I guess, you know, the thing to think about is that uh, the mod those models that we have, unless you're tasting them there, are not necessarily the entire canon. That the no canon, doubt about the it. The canon is bigger than that. No doubt about and, it. Uh, Go to any Bavarian town, find the church, 
The brewery will be right next to it. The tallest building in town will be a church. Go right next to the church will be a brewery. Sit down, drink that lager at the brewery. You'll love it. Grab a bottle of it, fly home, open that bottle a week later, and it's not meant it's not meant for that. Yeah. It's meant to grab and take home and drink them. It's the thing about lager. I'm sure it's the thing about beer, but I know it's the thing about lager. Yeah. So what's next for Beerstadt Lager House? It sounds to me as if I could guess that the next thing is the same thing you've been doing. But, uh, uh, you know, how, where, where is this going for you and uh, what's on your horizon? You're a smart guy. Yeah, a lot more of that. <laughs> a lot more pale lager. Um, you know, we look forward to this uh, fall time of year coming up for Oktoberfest. That's always one of our most favorite. I don't know, there's something about Oktoberfest that's kind of like Cinco de Mayo and St. Patrick's Day. Everybody wants to partake in it. Uh, so that's always a great time is, you know, making Meritzen beer, which we made a long time ago because we're always thinking two seasons uh, in advance. Um, we're making Doppelbach. You know, I think it's just tightening up some of our, you know, marketing and trying to do a little bit more with that. But honestly, just trying to make consistent beer over and over and over and over and over again so that you can't tell from batch to batch so that... You know, we can always get better in the brew house and always get better. Um, we're not done learning. You know, once in a while you have to go back to a book and go, do I still believe the same things I believed when we started doing this? And it's about just tightening up those those brew house practices and seeing what cool little tools that we can do to start measuring some things we haven't been able to measure. And honestly, that's where Bill and I are headed and hopefully a couple more vacations. Yeah, uh, like we had a few this year. We got to go to a few logger fests and I fun. think that was a blast. Uh, preparing for GBF is always, uh, well, you know, something here. That's something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then we're going uh, to Germany right before GBF. Yeah. Stock, yeah. Stocking up beer. Stocking up beer. We're trying to do that. I, I would this say. is this is the place to find brewers in Denver during GBF. Uh, we we do <laughs> tend to spend a lot of time in your uh, Rackhouse Pub upstairs because. You know, from my perspective, when I want to talk and meet with other brewers, they're here drinking your beer and not at a lot of other places. Yeah, that's, that does, that does that. tend to be, we do like being, you know, we've really tried to instill ourselves. It kind of happened on accident, I guess, or maybe not. Uh, brewers love pale lager, um, but we are an industry place. And honestly, sometimes it makes it work hard because you go upstairs and you're like, oh, I know five people up here right now. I better go back down to my hole or else I'll never get anything <laughs> done today. Um, but that's the good part. We want to, you know, the beer that nobody is talking about. Everybody's here to meet with everybody else. And we don't participate in GABF other than having our doors open. So uh, if you want to have it, you have to come here and get it. We don't enter the competition. And we're just trying to be us and do what we can do best. And hopefully people think that we're doing a good job. I, I think we're doing what we can. I mean, I... Uh our work is far from done even doing what we're doing we had a stated goal when we opened this and we decided to do the Glasgow thing which was to change the beer culture in Denver Colorado and we're woefully failing completely right now in that every time I go to a place and get a beer poured with no head and a dirty shaker pint I realize that craft beer has not come as far as it thinks it has this is the best country in the world for the most diverse styles and people that are really passionate about executing them well, but it's also the only country in the world where you can get a poorly poured beer in a crappy glass. This is the only country. Go anywhere. Go to South America. Go to Asia. Go to Germany. Every beer you get is presented like somebody loved it. 
It's in a beautiful glass. The glass is clean. It's got the right amount of head. Why in this country are we still able to walk into a sports bar and get a flat pour and a dirty shaker pint? Until the culture changes, I will feel the craft beer has not done what it should do, and it is clearly our stated goal to fix some of that. Well, that's a fantastic goal, and we <laughs> fully support you in that. Um, Bill I, Ashley Carter, thank you so much for joining me on the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. Uh, if you've enjoyed uh, hearing you know, their viewpoints, uh, you can read more about them in our Brewing Industry Guide magazine, where we've written about them. Um, in our uh, past lager issue, there's uh, some insights from Ashley on, uh, on her uh, opinions about lagers. So uh, subscribe to Craft Beer and Brewing magazine. You can do that at beerandbrewing.com. And uh, yeah, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so yeah, much. Thanks for having us. I'm going to go Actually, check out. Actually, thanks for coming here, rather. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to check out and go hit the pub upstairs and see if I can drink some lager. That's now. probably good. I'll no. pour you a pills off the filter here before you go. So. Oh, that's, what a wonderful experience that's going to be. It's totally uh, awesome. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you sharing your thoughts today. Yeah, thank so you. Uh, tune in next week. We'll have another episode. In the meantime, uh, cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrewing.